0: On the morning of November 5th, 2008, I opened my garage door and stepped out into my driveway and noticed my neighbor standing in the yard that connects our houses. He was wearing his pajamas, his slippers, and a robe, and he had a cup of coffee in his hand. I said, good morning and congratulations on the election he turned to look at me and I noticed streams of tears flowing down his face. He was standing with pride that morning as the sun was breaking over our houses beside his vote for Obama sign. I walked over to him to engage in conversation. And he said to me with a joyful smile and tearful eyes, I just never thought I'd see the day. A black president in my lifetime, President Barack Obama. And I was so happy for my neighbor, this older black man that I had spent so many times visiting and conversing with in the yard. I never told him my impressions of the election or what I thought of President Obama's policies or presidency. But a few years later, right before the next election, I bumped into my neighbor again in the yard and he said to me, I don't know who you're voting for, but that man's got to go. (laughs) We can't afford four more years. Speaking of Barak, let's turn our attention to the story of Judges 4. First things first, contrary to many modern commentaries and popular evangelical opinions, this story is not about ordination. This story is not about the roles of men and women in ecclesial contexts. If it touches on anything along those lines at all, it simply shows us that the church militant on earth and under heaven needs all men and women, young and old, to use their God-given gifts and skills for the common good in order to engage in spiritual warfare and overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil for the glory of God And the life of the world. At its core, this story is about God keeping his promise to send the Savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. In Judges 4, we see God's remedy to rescue his people and to restore the true worship of God in Israel. For many, many years, people had been afflicted and oppressed by a Pharaoh-like ruler who had more power, better technology, and more advanced weaponry than Israel did. The Bronze Age was giving way to the Iron Age. Israel's enemies had 900 iron chariots. These oppressors had taken dominion over Israel to such a degree that the men of Israel did not even have enough swords, shields, or spears to go around. And that means that it was humanly impossible for them to defend and protect themselves against this enemy. So to paint this image in a very bleak way and to put it in simple terms, here's what we're saying. Jabin and Sisera had tanks and Israel had sticks and stones. They had not yet come into the Iron Age. And so they were at the mercy of their merciless masters. And God's remedy to rescue his people and restore the true worship of God in Israel involved a Jewish woman named Deborah, a Jewish man named Barak, and a non-Jewish woman named Jael. They are a type of Israel, Christ, and the church. Deborah is called the mother of Israel. She is a prophetess and a judge. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. She is God's mouthpiece to Israel. She held court under a palm tree. And there she assessed and evaluated all the men of Israel. And it was there that she selected one man to be the savior of Israel, a man named Barak. She called Barak to rescue Israel, and since he was from the tribe of priests, this rescue mission would ultimately result in the true worship of God. Barak did not come out of nowhere like lightning from a clear blue sky. You see in the story that Barak was already a leader. He had 10,000 men at his command. And Deborah knew Barak and called on him to lead all of those men to engage Sisera and his army in war. I love what St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan in the late 4th century A.D. said about this story. Deborah's motherly affection did not allow her to keep her son out of danger. Rather, her zeal urged him to go forth into war and on to victory. Did you hear that, mothers? Worldly wisdom tells you to coddle your sons and to keep them safe and to make the world soft for them. But godly wisdom tells you to encourage your sons to toughen up. To do hard and scary things. And to face the dangers of this world with courage and conviction. Deborah did this for Barak. Lois and Eunice did this for Timothy. Elizabeth did this for John. Mary did this for Jesus. And the sword pierced her soul. Mothers, you need to do this for your sons. Why? Because believe it or not, sons can and will do almost anything, especially if they have the support of their mothers, of their Deborah's, of their church. The fact that Barack said he would not go unless Deborah went with him has led many modern Bible interpreters to describe Barack as a timid and cowardly man who hid behind the skirts. Of his mother Deborah. They have the audacity to say this. From the comfort and quiet. Of their cozy little library studies. And most of them have never faced. A life and death situation. Or seen the horrors of war and conflict. Up close and personal. What would they know about timidity. Or cowardice. But are they describing Barak in a fair and accurate way? Absolutely not. And here's how we know. We know because the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews describes Barak as a man who, by faith, conquered kingdoms, escaped the edge of the sword, and was made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. It's hardly descriptive of a timid and cowardly man hiding behind the skirts of his mother. To echo St. Ambrose again, what are we witnessing when Barack refuses to set out without this woman? Not cowardice, far from it, but faith. Faith, that is, which is the glorious combination of a humble confession of his own inadequacy and a sure confidence in the grace of God, known in this case through God's mouthpiece, Deborah. I would add that as a man of true faith, Barak wanted to go to war in the wisdom and power of the Spirit, not in the weakness and foolishness of the flesh. And that is why he wanted Deborah to go with him. A prophetess and a judge of Israel. Deborah was like an embodied presence of the Holy Spirit. So Barak was absolutely right to want her to go with him and to wait for her until she did. Does any of this minimize or marginalize Deborah in any way? Not at all. In fact, it goes the other way. It simply goes to show how influential and inspirational and impactful she was on the life of Barak and the children of Israel in crucial and countless ways. So in this story, the Spirit is showing us that Deborah and Barak come together, not as rivals, but as allies. Not as competitors, but as companions. And they do this for the sake of God's people. Now, as I said earlier, at its heart, this story is about God keeping his ancient promise to send a savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. And in some ways, he does that very thing in the life and experience of Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And here's how. In this story, Deborah comes across as a daughter of Eve and a mother of the children of Israel. Barak appears as a son of Adam and a seed of woman. Deborah is a type of Mother Mary and her son Barak is a type of Jesus, the true high priest, the commander of the armies of the Lord God and the savior of the world. So when you cast this story in that light, Judges shows us how God keeps his promise to send a Savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. When did God make this ancient promise? Well, remember back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve Eve sinned and fell from grace... God threatened the serpent with this promise that he would fix the world and make things right and put an end to the devil in all his works. And these are the words of the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Judges 4, Sisera appears as a type of the serpent. And there is enmity, conflict, and animosity between Sisera and Deborah. And here's why. He wants to bring her down because he knows that she is empowering and encouraging the men of Israel to take a stand against him and to stand their ground in the day of battle. When he gets word that Deborah has gone out with Israel's army, To pick a fight with him, he gets drawn off sides by her. He sees her as a soft target that he can easily overthrow. And he goes out to war with his mother's support. Sisera goes after the mother of Israel and her children with the support of his own mother. And he leads out with all the power and might of his iron chariots and his locked and loaded army rides out like a raging dragon to devour this woman and her offspring. In his imagination, this will be an easy fight. Judges 5 tells us that his own mother is at home cheering him on gazing through the lattice, waiting for him to come home, hoping for his arrival at the window, and praying that he will defeat his enemies and rape a few women and sow the seed of the serpent, pillage some villages, and bring home the spoils and stories of that victory. Don't miss what's happening here. In this story... Mothers are at war, and so are their children. The seed of the serpent waging war against the seed of the woman. And Mother Deborah is leading the charge. She uses herself as bait to draw Sisera out for war, while Barak and his men hide themselves in the bowl-shaped peak on the top of Mount Tabor. And there they are instructed to wait until just the right moment. And then they are to come down from the mount and unleash the wrath of God on Sisera's army. By military standards, this whole strategy is risky. If nothing else, it gives Sisera and his chariots an unfair advantage over Barak and his men. But Sisera didn't know that. Sisera did not know nor imagine. That Barak had surprise on his side. So, when he rides out with all of the pomp and pride in the name of his false gods, with the support of his mother, he expects to go to war, return quickly with another military victory to put in his trophy case. But something happened which Sisera did not expect. The weather changed, and his world collapsed which in his life and worldview would mean that the gods have turned against him and are not on his side. And that was true. Because the true God of storms descended from heaven and marched out to war against him. And as God drew near, he weaponized creation and turned the elements of water, earth, and sky against this serpent and his army. The earth trembled, the sky ripped open, rain poured through a gaping wound and the clouds dropped floodwaters on the battlefield. The river rose and the mountains melted and all those iron chariots became death traps in the muck and mire of that battlefield and Sisera's war machine came grinding to a halt. As a result of these acts of God, Sisera was utterly disoriented and discombobulated by the cacophony of winds and waters that were arrayed against him by the Lord. For the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, went out before Barak and his 10,000 men. He led the charge and delivered Sisera and his army into Barak's hand. And then Barak and his men put all Sisera's men to death with the edge of the sword except for Sisera who like a serpent slipped away and hid. Sisera fled from Deborah and Barak from fire and lightning from storm and sword to the tent of a woman named Jael. Now look who's hiding. Behind the skirts of a woman. Jael's name means useful. And Sisera believed that she would be useful to him and help him and hide him from Barak. But he was never more wrong in all his life. Up to this point in his life and especially in this war, no living man could hinder him. No living man could kill him. But Jael is no man. And she is about to unman this serpent man and take all the glory for it. What she does is put into an epic poem. It's a song describing her Deliberate and intentional acts against this serpent. When Jael saw Sisera fleeing for his life, she called to him and said, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And with seductive speech, she persuaded him and her smooth talk compelled him. And all at once he followed her and turned aside to her and went into her tent she covered him with a comfy and cozy blanket. She tended to him and treated him like a king. She gave him far more than he asked for. When she refreshed him, he rested. When she satisfied him, he slept. And then she sent her left hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. And she struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. The place Sisera imagined to be a haven of rest became for him a chamber of death. He had escaped the sword of Barak only to be nailed by jail. And waylaid by a tent peg. Now don't miss the point of what just happened here. Don't miss the point of what you just saw and heard in this story. In this part of the story, we get to see God keeping his ancient promise to send a savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. What you saw and heard in this story just now was a reversal of what happened in the Garden of Eden. There, the serpent seduced the woman and tempted her with fruit. He deceived her and she fell from grace and died. But here, the woman tempts the serpent and seduces him with her milk She deceives him, and he falls in disgrace between her feet, dead. This is a story of vengeance. Jael gets revenge for what happened to her mother Eve in the Garden of Eden. Like Deborah, Jael is a daughter of Eve. She's also a type of Mary She is called the most blessed of women because, like Mary, she willingly offered herself body and soul as the Lord's servant. And as a result of her useful service, a seed of the serpent was crushed under her feet and the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. All of this is a vivid reminder of what the psalmist tell us That some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. At its core, the story is about God keeping his ancient promise to send a Savior into the world to crush the serpent's head. And although we see God keeping his promises on a small scale in this story and stories like it, we must keep in mind that God ultimately kept his promise on a cosmic scale in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the apostles explain, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood humanity so that through his death he could destroy the serpent who has the power of death and deliver everyone who was held in slavery by their fear of death. And we were dead in our sins and sinful flesh, but God made us alive with him. How? God canceled the devil And all his trumped up accusations and charges that were against us. God made our record of sins null and void by nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. And disgraced them by triumphing over them in Christ crucified. All that to say, the serpent bruised the Savior's heel. But the Savior crushed the serpent's head. Now, what shall we say to all these things and how shall we live? In light of all these things, I want to remind all of you Deborah's, all of you mothers and grandmothers, that you are at holy war for the hearts and souls of your children and grandchildren. In many ways, it is up to you to teach the next generation under your care the story of God and to train them in the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make them wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As the historian Tom Holland expressed it so beautifully in his wonderful book, Dominion, the Christian revolution would never have happened without people like my Aunt Deborah. Through her unfailing kindness, she provided me with a model of what the daily practice of her faith could actually mean to a committed Christian. Monasteries and universities were never where the mass of Christian people were most influentially shaped. It was always in the home that children were most likely to absorb the revolutionary teachings of Christ. The Christian revolution was wrought above all at the knees of women. I also want to remind all you Barack's younger and older. That you are at war with the world, the flesh and the devil, not just out there, but in here and especially in your own hearts. We need the love and the support of our Deborahs, of our mothers and our wives. We need their wisdom and strength. We need their gifts and grace, and they need our strength and honor. We need to be strong and courageous for their sakes, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity and fear that we should turn back In hard times. Or shirk our duties and responsibilities. Or give up the fight. God gave us a spirit of power. And love and self-control. So that we can fight the good fight of the faith. All the way to the end. All the way to the victorious end. And finally I want to remind all the jails. The bride of Christ who dwells in his holy tabernacle. That the church is at war. But our struggle is not against politicians or movements. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers and against authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the weapons of our warfare are prayer and the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. Which are supplied to us for the left hand and the right hand. And their power is from God and not from us. Our story is about God keeping his ancient promises to send a savior to crush the serpent's head even in our life experience. For in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. O God, who knows us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers. And that by reason of the frailty and weakness of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. And we struggle to endure. We ask you to grant us such strength and protection. As may support us body and soul in all our dangers. And carry us through all temptations and trials unto the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.